This is a Career Channel program from UC San Diego Extension. Visit us at www.uctv.tv careers for videos, employment news, and trend articles to help recent college graduates and grads in career transition bridge to better employment. Hello, and welcome to Big Data at Work, a conversation with the experts, of which I am not one. But uh, we have assembled a wonderful group of people to talk about the challenges of big data. And we will hear their thoughts of what has become a very vast landscape. I am Hugo Villar. I'm the Director for Science and Technology at UC San Diego Extension. And I find that whenever I mention extension, most people have in their minds or continuing education programs. The 25,000 students that we take through our courses on a yearly basis that come to us for either professional growth or personal enrichment. And in reality, extension is a lot more than that. We have those cameras right here that belong to UCSD TV or UCTV that are managed by extension. We also do research led by our dean, Mary Walshock. We have been researching issues of workforce development and the economy innovation. And if we talk innovation, we try to innovate as much as possible on methods of delivery of educational products. Over time, we have done and accrued a lot of acumen in the area of online learning. And more recently, we have been working on MOOCs, Massive Online Open Courses. Now, when you look at that, you have to think that there is a lot of research that also needs to be going on, not only on the marketing front, but also trying to understand what is the best way to harness those new technologies in a way that satisfy the stringent quality criteria that makes us a top-notch university or part of a top-notch university. Finally, there is the overarching theme of extension, which is we are a nexus, a two-way nexus, between the campus community and the community at large. Not only the community that surrounds us geographically, but more and more the worldwide community. For quite some time, we have tried to bring in to campus experts from the top-notch companies or the people that we feel are doing a superb job with their businesses or with their companies and have them teach courses through extension or participate in these events. Like today, we have Zementis with us. The other way is the more traditional way where we try to showcase in the community all of the wonderful creative work and the top-notch research that is going on on campus. And for that, we have been offering a number of courses, workshops, 
certificates, and so on, sometimes and many times taught by faculty. Among those, a few years back, we started a certificate on data mining. And the idea of developing the certificate on data mining when uh, still all of this area of big data wasn't as popular was brought to us by Natasha Balak, who you will be hearing about in a few minutes a lot more. And the certificate has been doing extremely well. Uh, it has grown in popularity together with the press on big data. So you can see there is an exponential growth in the interest in the area. So a couple of months ago, we decided that we wanted to perhaps put together an event like this where we could showcase what's going on on campus to a larger community on the topic of data mining and big data. We approached the partners that you see there, the Supercomputer Center, uh, the Qualcomm Institute, and the Computer Sciences and Engineering Department, and we put together this program. Now, it is really a good effort in crosstalk and communication between what is going on inside and what is going on outside, mediated by us. We manage this event, but really the brains behind the operation lie on campus and on the outside community. We just brought them together today for you. To take us through this event, uh, we are lucky to have Natasha, who will be uh, guiding us through the day. Natasha has a PhD from Vanderbilt University that she got on the topic that we will be talking about today. So she did really work all her career on big data problems and machine learning and some other topics that are related to big data. Since 2003, Natasha has been with the San Diego Supercomputer Center. And she has, since then, become the director for the Predictive Analytics Center of Excellence. So without much more, here is Natasha. Please, let's welcome Natasha. Thank you very much for such an introduction. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you, Extension, for organizing such an amazing event. And thank you, our panelists and presenters, for um, coming to this exciting event. With that, um, I would like to introduce um, our first speaker and presenter. It is my honor to introduce Dr. Larry Smart. He is the founding director of the California Institute for Telecommunication and Information Technology, or um, otherwise known as CalIT2, which is a UC San Diego and UC Irvine partnership. And he holds the Harry E. Gruber Professorship in the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at UCSD's Jacobs School of Engineering. We're very excited to have him here today. And with that, please welcome Dr. Smart. Thanks very much, Natasha. 
Uh, so this word big data, you know, I've spent my whole life um, on big data, but it's like saying you spent your life on an exponential escalator. Uh, it, it just gets bigger and bigger. Um, you know, it's not just researchers anymore. When you do a Google search, there is more computer power expired in that search than the Apollo program in 10 years used on Earth and in space for all the missions in Apollo. That's the kind of big, that's what's generating all of this big data. Let me give you another. You know Angry Birds, the app? One billion downloads of Angry Birds app? That the, the, you know, when you do like on Facebook, there are five billion a day hitting like. So this is a totally new world in which the big data generation has gotten out of the hands of the researchers and exploded across the planet uh, to our society as a whole. Now, how does this exponential work? It's really hard to think about exponential. So there's this old Indian proverb that I'll give you an example of. You have a chessboard with 64 squares, and you put a grain of rice in the first square, two in the second square, four in the, in the third square. So you double each square. Well, by the time you get halfway through the chessboard, you're up to, to 2 to 32, the 32nd square, um, you got a lot of rice. You got about a billion grains of rice. But it turns out that, you know, that's one millionth of India's annual production of rice. So it doesn't seem like a lot, but remember, every square is doubling. By the time you get to the 64th square, that's only half, you know, twice that uh, distance on the chessboard, you now have a pile of rice as big as Mount Everest, which is a thousand times the production of planet Earth of rice. So this, keep that in your mind when you're thinking about what is it that's generating this big data. It's this unrelenting exponential and never before in human history have we had a sustained period of decades and decades of this kind of exponential growth. So what we're talking about tonight is to try to deal with something that humanity has never had to deal with. Now, the global production of this data is being driven a lot by smartphones. But you know, when you hold up your smartphone, uh, Mike Norman and I remember when the Cray 2 uh, came to our supercomputer center, it was $15 million and a lot slower than your smartphone a lot less memory than your smartphone. And there are a billion of these now. So this is, the world has, has, it's like this plague of bits has been creeping around the pre-existing physical world and then exponentially growing the generation of, of bits. So tonight um, we're going to have uh, three great speakers, Mike Norman, uh, who's going to talk about uh, supercomputing big data. Stefan Savage is going to talk about cybersecurity and this world of ever-expanding um, data. And uh, Michael Zeller is going to talk about big data and industry. Um, I'll just give you one real example that has to do with my body generating data. So as many of you know, I've been excited to learn how new technologies enable us to read out, essentially, the time dependence of our, of our bodies. But let me just give you an example of how my big data has grown. So when I got here in 2000, 
<clears throat> I really hadn't exercised enough and had sort of been eating too much like normal Americans, you know, and was looked quite different than I do now. Um, and so I started setting on the scale, standing on the scale every morning to figure out my weight. So I had one number that defined me. But before long, I decided, well, actually, you can just you know pay people and they'll take blood, send it out to a lab, and you'll, pretty soon you have a hundred variables inside your blood. You know, cholesterol and liver functions and kidneys and all this stuff. And then I was sort of look at that over time. So now I got a, a hundred times as much data. But I was an early adopter of 23andMe in 2008, just three years later. And you spit in a little tube and send it off, and you get back one million points along your human DNA, which is itself six billion long. And then I started realizing that I could, that you know, the human cells in my body are only 10% of my cells. 90% of the cells in your superorganism body are bacteria. And most of them are in your large intestine. And I started sequencing these. And I'm now up in the tens of billions of numbers that define me. And by the way, change every time I eat something and changes the ecology of the bacteria. Well, what about this year? Well, you heard recently that Craig Venter has started a new company. He's going to be sequencing the human genome in the, in the microbiome of 40,000 people a year. Lee Hood just announced the same thing, where he's going to have up to eventually 100,000 people who he's following on a regular basis. And, and George Church at the Harvard Medical School has a personal genome program, which is also looking to get 100,000 people. So now let's see, 100,000 people times 10 billion. We need scientific notation for that. And that's just in this field of medicine, which by and large, you know, is just getting out of, yes, I've got your data here in a manila folder. So it's a societal challenge that is getting greater at a rate we've never, ever seen. And that's why we're so excited to have these speakers here to help us through this amazing space. Thanks. So I'm going to talk about academic big data. Uh, the San Diego Supercomputer Center is a, a resource uh, that serves a large population of academic researchers uh, on campus, across the state, and across the nation. And uh, we've been in existence for almost 30 years. And in the beginning, it was about supercomputing, modeling, and simulation. But over the years, uh, data became more and more important in the scientific enterprise, such that about 10 years ago, I would say that uh, the center changed character and became more of a what we would now call a big data center uh, the, rather than a, a simulation center, although we do both, and the two really are synergistic. So, um, but before I get into scientific uh, applications of big data, I want to uh, just talk a little bit about this big data phenomenon. What is the hype all about? So I did something that was fun. I just went to uh, Google Images and typed in big data, and an amazing uh, pot potpourri of images and graphs and things appear. So in the next few slides, I just want to give you a, a gestalt of, of what big data looks like to 
the average person who might be Googling themselves. So the first thing that struck me was it's some kind of abstract art movement that is fascinated with zeros and ones. This one here I really like. This tunnel metaphor feels like you're on a journey to something that's brighter and better, you know, at the end of the tunnel. But, you know, there are literally hundreds of pieces of art all fixated on the bits of data that, you know, we're here to talk about in various shapes, and some of them include people and some of them do not. But it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating that you might say that this is the era of the bit. Okay, so that's one view of big data. Uh, the second is uh, what Larry referred to as the exponential growth of big data. And that's uh, shown here in this one chart. Uh, the vertical scale is in zettabytes, uh, which is one million petabytes. And what is a petabyte? Well, these days, if you put together a petabyte of disk storage, it's about the size of a sub-zero side-by-side. And we have about 20 petabytes worth of storage in our center. So you can imagine a long row of sub-zero you know, refrigerator freezers filled with disk storage. That's, you know, petabytes is a fairly large amount of storage in terms of, uh, you know, foot, you know, footprint in your data center. But here we're talking about millions of petabytes worldwide, and that growth is exponential and uh, shows no sign of stopping. Uh, This has been referred to uh, in various ways uh, as a deluge or, uh, you know, an iceberg or the ever-popular tsunami or tidal wave all having to do with water, interestingly enough. And I haven't actually figured out why water was the go-to metaphor and not something else. Um, Someone made the interesting comment, it really isn't a tsunami because a real tsunami hits you at one moment in time, knocks you down, and then the water goes back out into the ocean and it's done with. But this is not like this. It's really more like you know, something, an elevator that just keeps rising and rising. Why is it happening? Well, it's happening because of our networked world, but the network is just a means of moving data around. It's really the sensors uh, that are attached to that. And uh, Larry mentioned the smartphone. That is indeed one of the, you know, most important data sources today, but everything is instrumented with digital detectors scientific instruments, uh, automobiles, everything. Uh, So it is this confluence of digital sensors, which are becoming ubiquitous and more powerful in and of themselves, with this means of moving the data around worldwide that has given us this phenomenon of of the big data growth. Uh, You will also find lots of very nerdy slides like this, the big data landscape with, uh, you know, logos of dozens of companies that are catering to uh, this phenomenon, either in terms of providing hardware and software infrastructure to deal with it or to get insight out of it. And indeed, Zementus is one such company. But this is really in the commercial space. Uh, 
I, I like to think of that whole thing boiling down to turning clicks into cash. But in science, really, it's a different motivation. And so coming back to my center, uh, our tagline for over a decade has been data to discovery. Uh, information is what science creates, lives off of, advances with. So I want to now talk a little bit more specifically about what we do in-house and how we uh, apply that. Uh. So big data is really nothing new in science. And as I said, our center began with modeling and simulation. Um, and here is uh, a good example of uh, a state-of-the-art computer simulation of a magnitude 8 earthquake that uh, starts up uh, in Northern California and rumbles down through Southern California uh, and finally ends up in Palm Springs. Now this simulation, which is carried out on a supercomputer, generates big data. In this case, 700 trillion bytes of data came out of the supercomputer. What uh, I would say is different about big data in science is now the challenge is to take 700 trillion bytes of data that came from somewhere else, read them into the supercomputer, and do something with that, that data that contributes to new science, new knowledge. So, as I said, scientific data is generated digitally now, uh, whether it's a sequencer or a telescope or a sensor network under the ocean, these are all digital sensors that have become more powerful in the same way that computer processors become more powerful. They are able to generate exponentially more data because they are basically relying on the same semiconductor uh, technologies. So this data is coming from everywhere. And let's just put scientific data into perspective uh, with the ordinary big data that we read about in the media. So in the upper right-hand corner, you actually have uh, emails. That is the single largest uh, kind of big data. That's almost 3,000 petabytes. And then you've got uh, the big data from the social media companies, Facebook and Google, uh, down in the lower right, you've got Kaiser's medical records, 31 petabytes. Uh, the NASDAQ stock market database, you know, that's three petabytes. It's starting to be kind of a small circle. If you then look at um, the, the other circles, you start getting into science. This is the National Climatic Data Center database, six petabytes. Molecular biology data and public databases, five. Library of Congress digital collection, five. The Large Hadron Collider, that big uh, circular atom smasher in Geneva, uh, 15 petabytes. So relative to the uh, sort of the commercial and social big data, scientific data is a bit on the small side, but it's still much bigger than anything we've ever dealt with before. And so <clears throat> what we do at the San Diego Supercomputer Center is provide computing and software resources as well as expertise to help researchers uh, make something of that big data. So one of the uh, things that you will also encounter if you Google big data is something about Vs, the three Vs of big data, the four Vs of big data, the six Vs of big data. 
Uh, that itself is exponentiating. I like the three Vs because that's the first thing I ever heard about, and it kind of makes sense. So these are volume, of course, the amount of it, velocity, the rate at which it is streaming across the networks, you know, from smartphones into databases, and very relevant to science, the variety of that data, different kinds of data that have to be put together in order to create insights. So um, big data is about these three Vs. And so what we did at the San Diego Supercomputer Center a few years ago was write a proposal to the National Science Foundation proposing a new kind of supercomputer, a data-intensive supercomputer, one that had the attributes that it could deal with these three Vs. And that supercomputer is called Gordon. It was originally called Flash Gordon because it is the first supercomputer to have flash memory, flash SSD built into it. But we we just shortened it to Gordon so that we wouldn't get sued by Marvel Comics. But here it is. It's operating now over in our data center. And it is what I would call a big data supercomputer. It is designed to move, store, and analyze big data. Here's some numbers, 64,000 gigabytes of memory, 300,000 gigabytes of flash solid-state disk, 4 million-odd gigabytes of fast disk storage. We can move data in and out uh, at over 100 gigabytes per second sustained, uh, which is uh, actually a big number uh, compared to other supercomputers. And oh, by the way, it has 16,000 processors to do something with all that. Well, I'm going to just skip over uh, that slide and just talk about four applications um, out of hundreds that are uh, running on Gordon. So the first is in genomic medicine. This relates to what Larry was talking about. Uh, We've collaborated with uh, Janssen R&D, which is the research arm of Johnson & Johnson. And uh, we analyzed uh, 438 whole human genomes. Uh, in less than two months to uh, look at the effectiveness of a rheumatoid arthritis uh, drug. Uh, And this is truly a supercomputing problem uh, in terms of uh, the the capabilities required. Uh, The second, high-energy physics, this collider in Geneva, uh, generates all those those collision events and... uh, What we did was we helped them process the raw data into data ready for the scientists to analyze. And so we we added Gordon to the international high-energy physics data grid for two months, and we doubled the worldwide capacity in those two months. And that allowed Frank Worthwine, who's a professor of physics here at UCSD, to uh, process all of this data so that they could start uh, doing science with it. Third example is in a completely different field. Uh, This really is a big data field, and this is um, financial market analysis. Uh, This fellow here, Mao Yi at the University of Illinois, um, has his hands on the entire NASDAQ trade database. And what he does is he analyzes... um, those trades for evidence of market manipulation through high-speed trading. 
Uh, and he, in fact, has found uh, plenty of evidence for that. Uh, and then the last application I will mention is uh, Gordon itself is a search engine host. Uh, we have uh, some, several researchers have built what we call the Google for biological search. This is a search engine that allows you to type in uh, something you care about and get the results back in a way that a biologist could deal with it. This uh, integrates over 2,000 public databases and 100 million web pages into a form that uh, biologists could deal with. Uh, Last slide, we have um, uh, lots of expertise in-house as well, some of which are collected into what we call big data centers of excellence, one of which Natasha Bellick directs. And here they are here, the Center for Large-Scale Data Systems Research. They research the systems and software themselves that support big data. Uh, PACE, I already mentioned. Sherlock deals with protected biomedical data. And then finally, CADA researches the worldwide internet and what's going on there in terms of traffic and malware and things like that. So this last slide is really for the, the viewing audience at home who may want to uh, you know, follow up on, on some of these topics and learn more. Thank you very much. So I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, a meta topic with respect to big data, which is, is security. And, and I'm going to apologize up front. The security guy is always the downer. Right? Whenever you have a topic, we have data, we have sensors, we have everything. Then you have the security guy and says, let me tell you how bad it's going to be. Uh, so that's, in fact, that is half of the coin with big data. And I'm going to talk about what some of the risks that big data brings. But I'm going to spend the remainder talking about some of the opportunities for the security field that arise out of big data. So first, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start with, with some of the downsides. So one of the things that Larry referred to, this exponential growth in the collection and then the processing of the data, is motivated simply by our ability to do it. If we can gather data today, we do. And there is a tremendous demand to find a thing to do with all of that data because it is there. And we are building these enormous infrastructures for storing and processing it. And in order to actually work over that data, we can't leave it on all of your billion cell phones and actually have it be useful. No one is going to issue a database query over a billion cell phones. We need to bring it somewhere. And that is where the first and fundamental risk arises. So to reuse Mike's picture, centralization of all of these beautiful ones and zeros, the centralization of all of this enormous collected information itself presents a risk. If I wish to find something out about one of you, about Larry, and the only place that information was on his cell phone, somehow I would need to get into his cell phone. But instead, if I have brought all of that data to one place, then having compromised that one place, I now have information about everyone who is involved in that platform. And this manifests in ways that every time you open the newspaper, you'll hear about someone you know, on the commercial side, wherefore, 
commercial reasons, criminals break in to target and steal a minimum of 40 million credit and debit card records, the largest data breach of its kind in the retail industry ever. Would have been impossible if we just had all those little point-of-sale things and then it was done. It's only possible because there are huge interests in centralizing that information. The other side of the spectrum, if you have cracked a newspaper in the last year, you have heard about the National Security Agency and all of the tremendous data that they have been able to collect precisely out of those large platforms that uh, Larry and Mike talked about. Why? Because it is the best possible way to collect intelligence. In the old days, you had to go and spy on individuals. Now you just need a copy of what's in Gmail. And you've got everything. And, and I'm not... I mean, it's a joke, but it's true. I mean, this is, this is the era of the intelligence analysts because they can get so much more information than they ever could before simply by gaining access to a relatively small number of, uh, of data sources. All right, so, so this is, is the fundamental risk here. The other thing is, as you get many distinct data sources and as you collect more of them... Um, and this is, again, reprising one of Mike's pictures, you start, the questions you start to ask are, well, what happens if I take this kind of data and join it with this kind of data? And I look for the correlations. And, you know, following Larry's exponential growth, eventually what you find out is as you join this stuff together, we can learn almost anything about you. Things that are not, there's no specific data item in there that will say, Oh, this is your sexual orientation. Oh, this is your political beliefs. That's not, no one collected, but I can figure it out. You give me enough of these data points, and I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt what some of your very most private characteristics are. And so this is the other risk that comes along with big data, is that, you know, with big data comes big responsibility, as I'm sure Peter Parker would say if he existed in the modern era. Um, so this is, this is the, the thing to worry about. All right? and I'm gonna, but I'm going to... Admit that we cannot hold back big data. You know, as much as I tell you how bad it's going to be, big data is coming. All right? And so to play a little judo on this, what can we do to improve security using big data instead of just focusing on all of the... We have to deal with that stuff. I'm not just waving my hands. But what can we do to, to make the security situation um, uh, better? And I'll tell you right now that this is something that is already happening, all right? So the, the field of, of security broadly writ, but particularly computer security, is becoming a data-driven discipline, all right? Everything, almost anything that you do, if you use antivirus today, it is not some local thing on your machine. It is reaching out into the cloud. It is getting updates. It is streaming data. It is comparing information from across the 100 million customers that they have if you are buying stuff online, there's complex fraud systems happening at multi-levels that are sharing information. Everything that happens today that protects you is using many, many orders of magnitude more than they ever had available before. And they need to because that's the only way they stay ahead. So I was going to give a couple examples from research going on here to give you a flavor of the kinds of things that you can do when you have big data that might be difficult otherwise. Uh, and, and in so doing, talk to you about you know, some of the neat stuff going on on campus. All right, so one, this is a, a piece of work that we did over some time, which was looking, you know, do data analytics, but on the bad stuff, all right? Why just do data analytics on how to get people to, to buy, you know, things as a legitimate retailer? Why don't you look at this from the standpoint of, of the adversary? And so this is stuff like email, spam, and so forth. And so it turns out that if you actually look at this stuff, 
that the people sending you spam or uh, search spam, email spam, they actually have very complicated ecosystems with complex business arrangements with lots of different verticals that they interact with. I mean, they're all criminal, but it's, it's fairly involved. So here we were looking at this. This is a piece of email spam sent by the Grum botnet, and we were able to track this. And a user clicks on this, and then it has to have a registrar for the domain that you're trying to click, and this is in Russia. And then there's another one that is the name server that's in China, and then this is served out of a piece of content in a proxy server in Brazil that reaches back to a program in Moscow that is contracted with an Azerbaijani bank and a supplier out of India. Every single one of those needs is a separate entity, and they all need to work in concert for that piece of spam to ever make any money. And so, you know, you can, this is a, a qualitative example, but then you might ask, if I looked at all spam, which are the important links? If I was going to go and tell, invest my security dollar to undermine this, which link should I cut? And so, in the old days, this would have been tough. Today, we just got a cluster of, you know, 40 machines. We got every company's spam who would give stuff to it, and we crawled everything. We basically simulated the dumbest user we could find. We went over a billion different URLs. We bought from every organization uh, that was selling anything. And we were able to track every resource, including all of the flow of the money. All right? And so this was you know, a fairly substantive effort. There were tens of terabytes of data. But at the end, you get one important fact, which was that there were a handful of banks that were central to the entire operation. And that in stopping those, uh, in going after the merchant accounts in those banks, which subsequently became a major initiative by the brands and Visa and parts of the U.S. government, that you were able to actually undermine the entire enterprise. And that you could not have figured that out short of going through all of this data. And we had been working on spam for, uh, I don't know, since the dawn of the Internet. And this has not been something that someone had figured out. Another, another example of this, and this is an example of the variety Mike was talking about. So remember when Mike said most of the data on the Internet is email. Well, you know, here's another fact. Most of the email is spam. All right? In fact, 90% of the email is spam. At the time that this particular piece of malware called the Rustek botnet was operating, uh, it was 50% of all email on the planet. All right? So this was big data, but it was dark big data. I don't know <laughs> what you want to call it, Mike. Um, and so we were able to take together a huge amount of very different information. Underground forum, Russian chat logs of people talking to each other. Um, affiliate program data about people who are working for particular organizations. The raw spam data, the command and control data from this. Uh, places where people had managed to contract for getting their malware installed on different machines. And by cross-correlating all of this, we were able to take the, this botnet and follow it back to figure out who was the actual person who was profiting and hence operating for the entire thing. And there was no single link. You actually needed to combine all of these disparate sources of data in order to do this tracking. And then uh, one of the last ones I want to talk about is Bitcoin. People have probably been reading about this. This is the world's leading cryptocurrency. It's, as of today, about uh, $8 billion in exchange value. The big innovation of Bitcoin, totally decentralized. There is no central ledger. There is no oversight. There's no central bank that has a list of who has what. It's peer-to-peer -peer between all the things that speak Bitcoin. And one of the things that has made it very attractive for those on the criminal side is that it has transactions that are both irreversible and pseudonymous, meaning it's not tied to an individual. And so the assumption has been that this is basically a very safe place for you to do sketchy transactions. 
Now, on the plus for Bitcoin, huge advantage is very cheap payment because you don't have to deal with any uh, oversight infrastructure. And the risk is there's absolutely no controls on abuse. Central to this, because the central to the whole notion of having controls is can, this, can you figure out who did something bad after the fact? Right? Is it really anonymous? And so one of the nice things, because of the way Bitcoin works, is you can get, in a certain form, every transaction that has ever happened back to the beginning of this entire thing and run your data analytics. And so we had an innovative set of new clustering algorithms that Sarah Mickeljohn, a PhD student here, put together that was able to actually collapse most of these things and then through selected, she would go and make individual purchases that would establish limited ground truth and then build on that and was able to actually identify much of who is transacting with whom, which organizations would you need to subpoena to know exactly who the person was who did this. And so, in fact, the veneer of anonymity turns out to be somewhat false, that you can actually track quite a bit of who spent what on Bitcoin uh, if you have the authority to do so through, you know, through big data. And then the last part, and this is one that you all use probably without knowing it, is this question, if ever you, you know, you'll get one of these things that says, hey, visiting this site may harm your computer. And the way this one works, this is the uh, Google um, uh, Safe Search, is they get lists of bad sites on the internet, all right? And then they distribute them out, and if ever you go to one, it's, oh, don't go there. Well, how do you figure out what's bad? And do you have to wait until it did something bad to you before you can add it to this list? And so it turns out that that was the state of the art until we got involved in the collaboration between machine learning uh, and people in security. We built this live system that would automatically look at URLs and any time it figured something was bad would train this very complicated system that had millions of features and millions of features where there's new features, you know, thousands of features being added basically every minute has to do a classification in a millisecond and the entire model that you've trained can change in the matter of hours because the bad guys are always, so it has to be done online. You can't do anything offline. If you do it offline, it, it, it doesn't help. So we were able to put all of this together, and if you use email today from um, at least two of the big three providers, you are probably using this. This is the thing that actually is used to classify all the URLs and predict before you even know, before anyone's ever visited the site, including them, it would be likely that if you went here, it would be bad, so let's not do that. All right? So today, the security field is very much a big data field. And part of the reason is because ultimately what you're doing in security is you are competing with an adversary who is trying to do something to you that you don't want. And since ultimately what we are competing for these days is information, that being secure tends to be about understanding the environment better and faster and more efficiently than your adversary can. And that is the essence of a big data problem. And that's, uh, that's all I have to say today. Thank you. We're here based in San Diego, so this is our home court. We're a software company right here. Um, there's actually a, a very nice collection of software companies uh, focused on advanced analytics here in San Diego. So. Um, a very good uh, talent pool in town. Uh, we focus um, as a software company on the operational side of predictive analytics. That means deployment, integration, execution of predictive models in the context of real-time scoring and big data. Uh, we received this uh, prestigious award from CIU Review 
magazine uh, calling us one of the 20 most promising big data companies in 2013. It's actually another cool award coming up, uh, which I can't mention yet, but uh, it's been an exciting time for us dealing with big data. And if you look at uh, some of the logos at the bottom, there's actually uh, pretty much the who's who of um, big data that you would see in the industry today that's uh, on our partner network. And so we've been, we've been blessed uh, kind of uh, applying our knowledge in big data. And I'd like to share a little bit with you today what I see when I uh, really talk with clients and uh, uh, what we see in industry as the most uh, um, foremost uh, interesting applications of big data. Uh, when I uh, visit clients, most often I see actually big confusion. Um, is there a big hype? Absolutely. I think I realized that when I opened up the in-flight magazine on one of the major airlines, and there was an article about big data. Um, very, very unique, I guess, to, to see that on an airline magazine. So there must be big hype around it. Um, pretty much anyone is writing about big data today. Uh, your classical business magazines, your uh, uh, management consulting firms, but also your IT and your technology, your scientific magazines. So everybody is really interested in it, and I'm pretty sure you've had uh, the chance to look at Twitter, and there's, a, of course, a hashtag for big data. And if you just look at the volume there, it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty overwhelming just to follow all the news and all the, the postings around big data. So is there a big opportunity? Um, I don't think it's a big opportunity. It's actually a huge opportunity. And it's, it's unique because big data really transcends um, the typical technology boundaries that we see. Um, it's applicable in science, in academia, in research, uh, and virtually across any um, industry vertical, any market in industry. And that's unique about it. So although there is big hype, I think the opportunity, we're just at the very beginning of what we can do with it, uh, realizing all the, the, the advances in, in, in medical uh, science, for example, um, it's just uh, scratching the surface. So we've already seen in one of the prior presentations the Vs of big data, but uh, let me come back to that very quickly here. Um, volume, velocity, variety, three Vs is the classic thing that you see when you read about big data. Volume, it's easy. You know, we've already seen the, the exponential growth of data. It's just coming at us um, in, in massive volumes. It's coming at us also faster. Velocity. So we have to collect more data, and we have to process it more effectively and faster than ever before. So important part of that. Uh, variety. Um, on the business side, you probably, as you are active on, on all these social networks, we're generating uh, tons of likes, tons of interactions, uh, all of interest to the business community. Um, there's video, there's audio, there's pictures, there's log files. I mean, it's, it's really... a Beyond your classical data warehouse, where we were used to dealing with you know, table structures, it's now you know, not quite unstructured, but it is, you know, it's, it's a much larger variety. But while volume, velocity, and variety we can deal with with technology, it's really about value. Um, so I like to talk about the fourth V of big data. Um, how do we create value? And for us, um, for our clients, Primarily, it's business value. What questions do you want to answer? Where's the opportunity to generate more revenue, make better decisions? And that's really where you should start. Work your way back and find the right technology to apply to that. But it's really you know, starting with big, a big, big V number four. 
Um, so what's, what's really the big deal about big data? And I think it's, it's uh, looking at it in context. Uh, we're seeing kind of the perfect storm, um, and it's not just because big data is an isolated incident. It is the combination of big data, increased capabilities that we see today, uh, new platforms like Hadoop that are really being adopted um, faster than we've seen any, any, any technology adoption before. Uh, so our capabilities are increasing. At the same time, other trends like cloud computing are driving down cost. So now we have cost-effective, on-demand access to storage, um, to compute capabilities that we never had before. So increased capabilities, lower cost. And we also have you know, true and tested algorithms from statistics and machine learning that we've used in the past. Um, it was just much more cumbersome in the past. Uh, we even have open standards like PMML, which is uh, the predictive model markup language that makes predictive models portable between different vendors and applications. So all of these together really make uh, kind of the mix of um, business opportunity and drive the adoption of big data. So that's why I think you know, it's not big data by itself that, that's creating this wave, but really the combination of big data and other capabilities that we, we have today that we didn't have before. And you know, coming back to the, the, the part of big, uh, um, predictive analytics of big data and what we think is really the essence of creating value from big data. If you look at, at business today, many are stuck in kind of the classical BI world. Reports, dashboards, looking backwards in the rear view mirror, what has happened yesterday? What was my um, you know, transaction volume last month? Uh, which is good, but we don't really need more, more reports and more dashboards. With big data, what we need is predictive models, predictive um, algorithms that would tell us what will happen next. So what we need is automated decisions, uh, decision supports, alerts, automated actions, really. And that's driven by uh, predictive analytics. So data mining, um, advanced machine learning algorithms that, that um, can, can find the right patterns in your data, build a model, and then really that model making automated decisions. What's the next best offer for Mike when he's on your website? Am I at risk to go to a different cell phone provider? What's the risk for a certain loan that I'm applying for? Those are all projections into, into the future, the most likely outcome, what, what's supposed to happen. Um, looking at big data and predictive analytics, um, most often um, we see clients that are just happy doing batch processing. So looking at 100 million customers and applying your predictive models once a month, uh, if you get better at it, once a week, even better, once a day. Um, but really what we wanted to do is you know, go one step further and do that in real time. And that's really what's hard with big data. Now, real-time processing, you know, advanced uh, predictive models that make decisions while you're dealing with big data, that's really the, the, the tough part. But making the right decision at the right time when your customer is there, that's the essential uh, part of generating more business. And while you know, the real-time processing is one important aspect of it, so raw processing power, it's also the capabilities of deploying and developing new models faster than we've done that before. In the past, data science was the science, but right now we have to move those models that we can build on big data more effectively into the operational side, uh, use them on a day-by-day -day basis in real time. Um, so as we build you know, not just one model once in a while, but hundreds of thousands of models in an automated fashion, 
um, there's a standard uh, predictive model markup language that allows us to move between those different uh, worlds very quickly. So moving a model from the data, um, data science team to the IT operational side really happens in minutes um, by transferring a file. And so what you do there is you minimize the latency from your data to your new decisions. Uh, so equally as important as the raw processing power is the right process and moving and developing models more, more effectively. So let me, um, as we're coming to the end here, look at some of the use cases and some of the applications that we've uh, seen with our clients. Uh, I, I always like to divide in, in two separate classes, two simple classes, one dealing with people and data about people and behavior, and then the other one on the bottom side um, is really the, the classes that deals with machine data, sensors, and devices. Equally um, important for both. And uh, if we start in the top right, um, social networks. Um, your interaction, making a recommendation, showing the right contact at the right time, I think is you know, you're dealing with big data, lots of interactions, lots of likes, lots of uh, preferences. Your skill set on LinkedIn, if you're, if you're there, um, will tell a lot about you. As, as we heard before, you can find out pretty much anything you want about an individual by looking at social networks today. Uh, likewise, in the context of online shopping, what's the best recommendation for me if I'm on a certain site looking at computers? What product should they, what's the next best offer they should make me? Um, transitioning to the offline world, if I go shopping at the supermarket using my loyalty card, they can probably tell me um, what's the most likely product, a coupon I should bring in, uh, a printout to, to, to give to me so I come back next, uh, next week. Um, so a lot of marketing opportunities, often dealing with massive amount of data, 100 million customers, 1,000 different marketing campaigns I'd like to apply that to, and I need to do that as effectively as possible, minimizing my cost. So cost minimization is actually a very important aspect that drives the adoption of big data. And I can do things that, you know, in the past I needed a supercomputer before uh, for, for doing that. Today I can do that you know, on, a, on a commodity cluster. On the top right side is, is where we see most, most of the uh, sophisticated applications in the financial industry. That is risk scoring, you know, what kind of credit line should I um, give a certain person, uh, or fraud detection. Um, as I swipe this particular credit card, is that me swiping it or is it a fraudulent transaction? In, uh, in both incidents, the faster you can make that decision, you know, the, the, the more you can minimize your risk. So all these uh, you know, people or behavior-driven applications are in the context of big data. Sometimes the decision is made on a very small amount of data, but you still need to build models on a very large set of customers in order to make that model function you know, the best way. Um, the huge opportunity that we also see is in the sensor and device data side. So looking at different, different uh, data sources from sensors, uh, from um, biometrics to um, uh, pumps, for example. Rotating equipment is a very uh, classical example. You have vibration sensors on, on, a, on a device, and you can tell that that device will most likely uh, fail in the next week, in the next month. So you can take action uh, based on sensor signals. And the faster and the easier you can process that, it, let's say you have one device uh, or 100 devices or 1,000 devices, you need to be able to scale that infrastructure. Um, other use cases deal with um, um, log data um, that can be 
uh, you looked at from, from the security side. Is this malicious traffic? Is it normal traffic? Is my server just misconfigured? Um, the energy industry, huge opportunity for us to look at the stability of the grid, managing the assets that, that, that uh, are in our grid, as well as renewable energies. And then, of course, um, we don't have much time to go into here today. There's also the, the bridge between sensors, our cell phone, and our behavior. So if I'm in a certain store, you know my location, you know my behavior, my preferences. Now you have sensor data and personal behavioral data, and you can make the most out of that. So huge opportunities for big data um, in virtually any industry, and that's really what sets it apart. So why should you care? Um, closing up here. Um, it's Number one, it's perfect timing. So new platforms, new capabilities, um, give you the opportunity to, to address new business, uh, new business opportunities. So looking at you know, uh, new markets, entering new markets. Um, and then if you look at that as an opportunity, from the other side you can look at it as a threat. So if you're an established player, it can be a disruptive threat, and it can allow competitors to enter a market uh, with less investment and faster than it used to be in the past. So... Either way, you should definitely keep, uh, keep on top of the big data uh, news um, and, and make sure that you understand what are the opportunities and what are the threats to your business. And with that, thank you very much. <laughs>